0: Welcome to New World of Work, a podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce. I'm Reese Black, Head of Workplace Design at Oyster, a global employment platform making it easier than ever to build a brilliant team on an international scale. On New World of Work, we'll hear from some of the world's best and brightest people and culture experts on cutting edge topics that people operations professionals need to hear today, all through a global lens. Join us as we navigate this new world of work together and learn more about each other along the way. Thank you so much for tuning in and supporting the podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on how we can improve the show and what you're interested in learning about next. Please take a moment to share your thoughts on the new world of work listener survey linked in the show notes below. Looking forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to a brand new season of New World of Work. We're really excited to continue our deep dive into the current challenges, opportunities, and innovations we're seeing in the global workforce. Today, to kick off the new season, we'll be discussing a topic that's highly pertinent to the working world today, regardless of whether you're a CEO or an entry-level employee, and that's workplace well-being. The pandemic has made us all uniquely aware of just how precious our health, happiness, and personal relationships are, which is why many business leaders are now making more of an effort to prioritize the well-being of their teams. To find out more about what's new in the world of workplace well-being, I'm sitting down with Sylvia Moll, a thought leader in talent assessment, an industrial and organizational psychologist, and the head of the Skills Evaluation Lab and Assessment Research Lead at Code Signal. Sylvia shares plenty of actionable tips for people operations leaders hoping to champion employee well-being in their workplace. So I hope you'll walk away from this episode with some new ideas and strategies you can put into place in your own organization. Enjoy the episode.
1: My name is Sylvia Moll and my career so far has been focused in the talent assessment space. So specifically within that, I've been on the vendor side of pre-hire assessments, both behavioral and technical assessments that are used in selection processes to hire employees. So I've worked with clients on consulting on the implementation of the assessments in their selection systems, and I've also worked on the research side to help develop the assessments as well as validate them to make sure that they're following scientific best practices and are legally compliant.
0: So could you maybe give a little bit of background on what the industrial organization psychology is?
1: So I'm going to call it IO psychology for short. That's typically what we're called in the U S at least, but IO psychologists go by various different names, whether in our roles or just in different regions. So you might also hear like business psychologist, for example, but essentially it's the application of scientific principles and psychological research to the work context. And the field of biopsychology consists of both researchers and practitioners who are trying to produce and apply evidence-based research that can improve workplace processes and experiences for both the organization as well as the employees themselves. So it's actually a surprisingly broad and niche field at the same time. I/O psychologists go by a bunch of different titles like I mentioned, but the field will cover topics like talent assessment, employee selection, talent development, performance management, DE and I, occupational health psychology, well-being, which I know we'll talk a lot about today, employee motivation and job attitudes, which was a passion of mine during my doctoral research. And I could keep going, but I feel like that's a sufficient list for now. So
0: I guess let's talk a little bit about Code Signal. Can you tell us about your role there?
1: Absolutely. So I lead a team of I/O psychologists at Code Signal. And we played two main roles there. So one, we partner closely with engineers on the development of what we call our skills evaluation frameworks, which is our solution for consistent and scalable assessment and interview questions. So we design the processes and conduct the validation studies to ensure that our frameworks are scientifically valid and legally compliant for our customers to use. The second role that IO psychologists play at CodeSignal is to partner with our customers on the implementation of these frameworks and on CodeSignal solutions within their own hiring processes. So we might partner to conduct things like a job analysis or custom validation studies, and those help us ensure that our customers are leveraging our solutions in the most fair and effective ways for their specific candidate pool. But overall, CodeSignal is is an end-to-end talent assessment and interview platform that is going to help the recruiting and hiring space specifically with the technical roles right now.
0: So I, I guess following on from that, what would you say is your overarching career mission with the work that you do?
1: At a very high level, my overarching career mission is to make the world of work better for people. If I were to break that down right now at CodeSignal, I'm focused on making hiring for technical roles more fair for candidates and more scalable and consistent for employers.
0: That's a fantastic summary. I love that. What would you say are some of the biggest challenges that people ops leaders face today when it comes to talent assessment and, and workplace wellness?
1: I think the biggest challenge for people ops leaders is that they're the ones who need to be challenging how we've historically thought about and approached to talent assessment and workplace wellness. So, it's impossible to make a standard process that's going to be ideal for every single person that it impacts. But there are evidence-based solutions for how to improve candidate and employee experiences. And these solutions very well might go against the status quo of what's been done historically. So for example, in talent assessment, like there's a lot of opportunities for bias to come in. And a lot of hiring managers want to look at resumes and trust their gut after having like, conversations with candidates. But we know from research that this leads to a lot of human bias and ineffective decision-making in hiring. So I think with regards to workplace wellness specifically, another thing that's happening here is that the boundaries between life and work are constantly changing. And we need to adapt the workplace policies to reflect the societal changes that occur. So. You know, I think the big one that everyone's been feeling and trying to grapple with is ever since the COVID-19 pandemic and the shift to more remote work, working from home, or what does a hybrid workplace look like? There's a lot of people who are trying to figure out what's going to be the most effective solution. And it's going to be different for different companies, and people are going to have different preferences there. But I think that when we try to just go back to what's worked in the past and ignore that these shifts are actually happening, that's when we lead. That's when we face a lot of the challenges of, you know, things have changed, that's not going to work anymore. So it's figuring out what's next. And it's being that the forefront of figuring out what it's going to look like in the future.
0: So you mentioned something really interesting there. You, you mentioned this idea of going against the status quo, and I resonate with this a lot. So we know there's a problem there to solve, but convincing whoever they need to convince, the CEO, other execs in their organization, anecdotally, and also from you know peers that I've spoken to, I feel like this is a particularly, people are particularly resistant to kind of innovate on this on the way that we assess candidates on the way that we we bring new talent into the organization why do you think is it is it is it viewed as particularly risky to try and push the boat out and and do talent assessment in a different way why do you think this is one thing that is sort of met with resistance or or apprehension about changing
1: i think it's it's a lot of things i think partially it can happen if if candidates don't know why they're being assessed a certain way. And so the candidate experience can hurt too if they're being asked to take an assessment that's different from what they're expecting. If it's surprising to candidates, they might not react well, or if it's not clear on like why they're being asked certain questions. I think the other aspect of it is that it's a highly regulated space and it's a litigious space in terms of pre-hire assessments. And though I think all of the regulations are well-intended, they also come from some belief systems that can it can lead to outcomes that aren't intended. So, for example, I know that there's new regulation in the U.S. that's focused on automated decision making. And so we're putting new regulations on technology because, and it's fair, like we, a lot of people don't understand what's happening behind the scenes on this technology. We want to make sure that it's fair. And so we are putting regulations down to make sure that it's not introducing any bias. That's very easy to do with an algorithm, with technology where you can look at the input, you can look at the output. But the thing is, the alternative to that is this biased human decision-making that we know about. And the issue is that we're not holding that to the same standard necessarily. So I think oftentimes it's easier to do interviews, to do human decision-making because it's harder to track in terms of that, that, confirming whether or not that bias was introduced. But we know that 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 human bias exists there. So I think it is also weighing like, more of the unknown with technology with new assessments, compared to the comfortable interviews to seeing people face to face. And I think the other aspect there is that it does feel more natural to get to meet with somebody, get to see them in person for both the interviewer and the candidate to feel like they understand why a decision was made. But I think that what we're missing there is that there's a lot of the internal processing and decision-making that humans are involved in that we're not tracking as well as we can with these assessments.
0: Yeah it's a, It's a funny paradox in that way, right? We're almost trying to protect ourselves from ourselves, you know even though we're, we're we're kind of putting fairly unnatural barriers in front of ourselves, we know that that will ultimately or should ultimately result in better outcomes because we we're humans and we have biases and and these things lead to unintended outcomes. So, I, I guess then coming back on to focus a little bit more on on IO psychology. So, I'm always trying to think about the the person that's listening to this podcast. For that person that's listening, how how can a people leader apply in a practical way IO psychology to their day to day role? Specifically, also when it comes to employee well being in a distributed or or remote company that you know has people all around the world, different time zones, working asynchronously. Have you got any tips on how to? put that into practice for them?
1: Yeah, I think this is a difficult question to answer in some ways because at its core, IO psychology is really just about systematically applying scientific research and evidence-based solutions to business practices. So there are a lot of different fields within IO psychology that you could draw from depending on what your focus is on right now as the people ops leader. Um, But specifically with regards to supporting remote And distributed or asynchronous teams in terms of like their well being and how and how they're performing their roles. I would lean on my area of expertise a little bit more and say that you can conduct like a job analysis or a needs analysis, which is essentially just a way to better understand what are the job requirements, what are the skills and knowledge areas that are required to perform the job. And I think that's particularly important right now because we need to understand how these roles are changing, especially if they used to be in person and they've now shifted to a more virtual format. And then I think another aspect of applying IO psychology to support teams is to give all employees a voice with regards to how they want to be supported. And you can do this via like job attitudes or engagement surveys or even focus groups and and hearing from your employees directly. But making sure that if you are opening up this opportunity for employees to weigh in, that you have to act on the feedback. So I know that a lot of companies might do these engagement surveys or attitude surveys to get a pulse of how their organization's feeling. But when there are... Constructive criticisms or negative feedback. If those aren't addressed, then I think it it can make your employees feel much more frustrated. So it's partially giving them a voice and then acting on it. And then I think finally, develop processes and procedures to ensure that everyone's getting the resources and support they need to perform the job well from their own location.
0: So I think all of us over the last few years will have realized that employee well being is very, very important and is becoming increasingly important not just for corporations or to you know the businesses that people work within but the large scale societal effects that that can have and you know i think everybody knows uh, what we're referring to in that regard why do you still think that so many people are missing the mark when it comes to supporting their teams in this way
1: for me i think that at the end of the day It's because most leaders still report to someone else. So they themselves are employees that may or may not be well supported. And most likely, this is going to require more of an overhaul or a rethinking of how we fit well-being into culture or workplace like organizations as a whole, as opposed to it being a leader's responsibility to support that well-being. Because again leaders being employees themselves, they're also held to performance standards, right? And like, most likely their performance standards don't include how well they're supporting their employees well-being. So I think that this is partially because for a very long time, people have seen work as very transactional in in nature. So you are paid for a, a specific output that you can produce. And I do want to acknowledge my own privilege here in that, like, salaried office positions might be more comfortable. We might be able to have this flexibility of talking about more well-being and how we can address this. But there are still a lot of hourly and manual jobs that are more transactional in nature. And I think a lot of how society's idea of work started really originates from these types of jobs. But not all jobs have to be set up that way. And so when we think about these corporate environments that are really trying to address well-being more, it's important to think about what you actually care about in terms of the outcomes instead of how you regulate people and how you regulate their hours like we used to think about. So, for example, for your job, what's more important, the hours that you put in or the ideas and the outcomes that you produce? and I think that we have to give employees more freedom and control over their own time instead of holding them accountable for how long they work. We want to hold them accountable for the for the impact that they can have in the organization. Right. And so it does become more about supporting well-being and making that a business case like it's not just. It's not just doing the right thing because employees are people, but it's also protecting employees from burnout. It's also making sure that you're allowing employees to show up fully in a way that they can be productive. And it just might not, it might not work that way if you follow the structure that's been set up for a long time.
0: If the the modern corporation is one of the the primary building blocks of society and you know, from a purely capitalist point of view, the the job of a, or the role of a a company is to generate profit. Do you think that there should also be this discussion in an organization? It should be part of the mental model, part of the business model, that they have a societal responsibility to, yeah, be be, be good stewards of wellness and who is in their own organizations and what that ultimately compounds to for the, 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 the city, the country that they're in.
1: Yeah, I think it, it depends. And I think that for organizations it's it's difficult because organizations aren't a person, right? Like they they are made up of a lot of people who likely have very different perspectives. And so I think for an organization to take a societal stance, it can be very impactful, but it can also be isolating to certain groups of people who might not agree with that stance. And so I think that there's a challenge there in terms of really addressing societal political issues that are happening. But I think a way that you can do it while, you know, supporting employees and their well-being isn't necessarily to take a stance on what the outcome should be or what, what people should believe in terms of politics or society more broadly, but rather understand that how, how it impacts the employees. And so, you know, like whether or not, um, you know, like regardless of your beliefs of what's happening in either like wars or with, with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's impacting employees. And so you don't have to take a stance on that issue as a whole, but giving employees that flexibility and knowing that it impacts their lives. And there's a lot of mental and emotional and physical demands when people are processing these societal issues that prevents them from being able to show up fully every single day. And so, you know, like having some empathy there I think is important.
0: So it's a, a, an easy question to ask you would be, you know, what are some of your, your, your top tips or, or strategies for improving workplace well-being? I would kind of like to flip that on its head, though. I would actually like to ask, what are, what are some of the non-negotiables in your eyes? What are some of the, the table stakes, absolutely essential things that need to be in place that you think are foundational to well-being for your workplace?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I love that you that you're leading with the non negotiable, because I think that'll go into the the tips as well. But I think for me, there are probably three non negotiables when it comes to actually trying to improve well being. I think the first is to define what you mean by well being. So it can be very easy for leaders to get in a room, talk about their goals for improving workplace well-being, but is everyone aligned to what that means and does that definition resonate with what employees actually want? So one, it's define and align yourselves to what you mean by well-being. And then two, very related to that, is to actually measure well-being. So you have to measure how employees are currently feeling with regards to whether it be you know their well-being as a whole, how the culture supports it, the processes in place. You need to measure it so that you know if it's improved or not. It can't just be that gut feeling. So, you want to know where you're starting with this. And then, when you introduce interventions, when you introduce ways that you're trying to improve well being, you can measure again afterwards. See if it's actually improved, see if it's gotten worse. It allows you to get feedback and, and to adjust that way. And then, I think the third non negotiable, and this has come up earlier as well is to give employees a voice. I think that's one of the most critical aspects of employees remaining engaged and feeling like they're heard in the workplace is to have input. So giving them a voice in how they want to be supported and what processes they need to feel like their well-being is being put at the forefront and and allowing them to show up at work.
0: I think it's difficult enough to define one definition of well-being, and as you say, to be able to measure it and and put interventions into place to to improve, if you have to have multiple definitions that are, are taken into account different personas of your employees uh, across the organization, how how do you deal with that?
1: That's a tough question to answer. So in terms of. Dealing with, you know, cultural differences of well-being and, and especially individual differences. So if you are giving employees a voice and they want to be supported in different ways, I think that it can be important to understand, like, what can be done to address the most critical issues. So looking for like, where is there alignment across people, and making sure to address those first. But I think that there are also ways to address well being one at the organizational level. So the processes that you design, and the the interventions that you put in place at the organizational level. But there's also manager training that you can go through to help managers support their employees at that individual level as well. So I think in terms of your question about like well-being looking different depending on the culture I think there are aspects of it that are still shared so you know like the hours a week that you work in terms or like that are expected that might be an aspect of well-being that varies drastically across cultures but at the root of it we're still talking about enabling that work-life balance so like what does that look like that is shared across cultures. And so the metrics themselves might shift, but I think that there are concepts that we can identify that can be a little more global as well.
0: As people ops leaders, a big part of our role involves challenging the status quo to help the organization find new and better ways of doing things. However, this isn't always easy or straightforward. Like Sylvia mentioned, organisations are often hesitant to implement new strategies, lest they backfire later on down the road. In many cases, leaders can be prone to sticking with the devil they know, rather than branching out and trying something new. Because let's face it, change can be scary. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't stop pushing the boundaries and experimenting with new tactics to see what works best. After all, progress isn't possible without a little trial and error. When it comes to talent assessment, for example, it's important to recognize that humans are indeed fallible and inclined to operate from bias, despite our best intentions. This is where technology can come in handy. Let's hear more of what Sylvia had to say on innovations in talent assessment and workplace well-being. So we spoke a little bit about the biases that can be inherent in the hiring process and particularly from the, the the technical assessment point of view which of course is the the bread and butter of code signal but i would also love to to also touch a little bit on the the non technical side the behavioral side too because if i remember if i heard correctly you, you do have a bit of experience and, and, and expertise in that too so i'd love to hear yeah a little bit about how we can eliminate some bias on the behavioral side of things
1: Biases can impact behavioral assessments and hiring in much the same ways that they can impact technical skills hiring. But I think in terms of working towards eliminating bias and discrimination within the workplace, it has to happen both during the hiring process as well as being reflected in the company culture. So if you have re- eliminated bias in your hiring process and you're able to bring in a diverse pool of employees, but the culture is still not very accepting, it's not very inclusive, then those people are gonna go right back out the door and then you have to hire all over again. So you really have to build that culture simultaneously, if not first, before bringing in and, and just completely addressing that in the hiring process. And I think to do this, both in hiring and within you know existing employees, we as, you know, like managers, leaders in the workplace have to challenge our own preconceptions of what a high performer looks like and what minimum requirements are for a role and what our expectations are, because what is that based off of? You know, it's based off of our own biases. It might be based off of historically what, what a top performer has looked like, which is probably impacted by systemic bias there as well. And so I think part of that is taking a step back, looking at the job and thinking through, You know, looking at the job description, I think is a good example of this, right? When you look at a job description, there's a bunch of minimum requirements there. Often it's a college degree, but why? Like that's just something that's been very common, commonly used as a proxy for somebody who should have more knowledge in this space. They should, you know, have put in so much effort or have... A level of intelligence to obtain that degree. But it doesn't mean that people without the degree don't have those same qualifications. So by leaning on that, we're leaning on another proxy that could introduce bias there. And so I think that's just one example of challenging our preconceptions of like what's actually required for the role. I think another important thing to do as leaders, is to acknowledge our own biases and reflect on where they enter the hiring process as well as the performance evaluation process. So in terms of like the behavioral biases that we can introduce, you know, research tells us that people tend to favor people who are more like themselves. So if you are talking to somebody during an interview and you can relate because of a previous experience or somebody that you both know, then you might ask them easier questions or your demeanor might just make them more comfortable and that's introducing bias there. But also when you have your existing employees, do you know somebody from a previous workplace or do you have a better relationship personally with one of your employees than others? Or is there somebody who just approaches problem solving the same way that you do. And so like that can also lead to biases. So when you do performance evaluations as well, taking a step back and thinking through what are you actually evaluating here? What of, what of your own biases are you introducing to this process? And how can we build structure and more consistency around hiring plans or performance evaluation tools that can help us prevent and reduce this bias?
0: So let's bring it back on to this well-being topic. We know that lack of motivation is often a major issue for employees, and it can really impact a company's productivity and its, and its overall output. What are some of your tips for increasing employee morale and motivation or increasing your own sense of purpose of, or motivation?
1: To me, I think motivation is both a trait and a process that we need to understand. So individuals come in with their own initial levels of motivation or what drives them. And then there are also processes you can put in place within an organization to motivate your employees. So my own personal research has focused a lot on the motivational traits aspect and where that comes from. I think a lot of motivational traits requires an understanding of psychological needs, but it boils down to typically three different needs. So there's autonomy or power. So having a sense of control and then The second need is relatedness or belonging. So feeling connection to other people and also understanding how what you do impacts others. And then finally, the third psychological need is competence or a need for achievement. So feeling like what you're doing, you're doing it well. And every individual has these three needs to some extent, but the one that's more motivating for them might differ. Like the extent to which they have any of these needs might differ. And I think when you can optimize for what an employee's needs are, that's how you help them feel really engaged. That's how you help them feel really motivated and experience that intrinsic motivation. So that's a motivational trait piece of it. But I think that in terms of motivational processes, there's also processes that the organization can put in as a whole to guide people and direct them, which can help with motivation as well. So I think one of the most popular motivational theories that people are familiar with is goal setting. So we want to set goals to help motivate people to drive direction. And there are some ways to set goals that are more effective for motivation than others. So for example, setting a challenging goal that's not overly difficult. If you make a goal impossible to achieve, then that's not going to motivate people because they don't see themselves actually being able to, to achieve it and if you make a goal too easy that's not particularly motivating either because then it's just done so having the appropriate difficulty level having the appropriate level of specificity in the goal so people actually understand you know what what you're wanting from this goal and and how to work towards it i think that's important and then it's also helping people it's tying these together like thinking about how this goal setting process can tie to motivational traits you can really hit that need for relatedness or that need for belonging by helping people understand how their own contributions are impacting these overarching company goals. You can also help them experience that need for achievement or that need for competence by tracking progress towards their own goals, towards the company goals, and showing where their contributions have impacted that. And then I think that Going back to that need for autonomy or that need for power or control, giving them some flexibility in terms of how they get there. So allowing employees to make mistakes and grow from them if it's not derailing from this overall overall trajectory of the goals that are set in place. So when you think about motivational traits, it's what drives you as a person and How can that be encouraged in the workplace? Whereas extrinsic motivation is almost something separate. It's like, how can we put reward systems in place to motivate people? But at the end of the day, we work to have an income to support our families, to support our lives. And so I think that 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 intrinsic motivation becomes an assumption of the workplace. But there are different levers that you can pull in terms of what are these external motivators. So how are you rewarding people? That can be benefits programs, but it can also just be like acknowledgements. Like, are you acknowledging high performers and and highlighting what is expected? So I think that it's not necessarily an either or. I think people can be very intrinsically motivated in their role as well as expect and, and be motivated by these extrinsic or external motivators.
0: I want to talk a little bit about what's next for you and Code Signal.
1: What's next for me personally is is parenthood. That's coming up in a couple months for me. So, that's I think going to flip my world upside down and and make me reflect on navigating my own personal world of work and how that's changing. But what's next for me and Code Signal is just continued growth. So, I think Code Signal is already Building something really great, and the plan is to scale our solutions and our products so that we can make more frameworks, we can make um, more realistic simulations for technical roles, you know, across different industries for just more types of technical roles, and ultimately making talent more accessible and making hiring more fair for employers and candidates.
0: So the the, the last question here is the question that we ask everyone that that comes on new world of work. What is the best mistake you've ever made and why?
1: I've heard you ask this question and I've I've thought about it a little bit. I think the best mistake that I've made is the way that I used to approach presentations when I was in graduate school. So the way that I used to think about what it meant to present information is I have to be really accurate and I have to provide context and I have to be detailed And I need to cut to the point, like I need to tell people what they need to know. I got a lot of critical feedback in graduate school, especially very early on about how boring I was when I delivered this information. And so I think I learned from there that no matter how insightful you are or how correct you are in the information that you're sharing, if nobody wants to listen to you, it doesn't matter. And That really helped me grow, thinking about my communication style. And so I think that within graduate school, it became not only a focus of acquiring the knowledge and the skill sets, but also challenging myself for every presentation that I gave To try to make it a little more engaging to make it better. And I think that's really impacted and defined my career trajectory. So I've done a lot of consulting. I've worked with a lot of major organizations. And I don't think I would have had the confidence to do that. And I don't think that I would have been able to engage like executive level stakeholders had I not gotten this feedback early on.
0: I think that's maybe one of my favorite answers I've ever had (laughs) to that question. Thank you so much. That was. That was fantastic. I hope it was enjoyable for you too.
1: Yeah, it was great. I really enjoyed the conversation and the topic. So thank you for having me.
0: Not at all. My pleasure. What a fascinating conversation with Sylvia. We touched on so many aspects of workplace psychology, well-being, and motivation. But here are a few of my key takeaways. Number one, challenge the status quo. A major component of any role in people ops involves continually pushing the envelope to introduce improvements wherever and whenever possible. In other words, it's time we learn to lead with intention and question the practices that have become commonplace in the workforce over the years. Secondly, stay mindful of internal bias. Objectivity is important in most roles, but it can be especially crucial during the hiring process. It's common for people to favor certain candidates over others based on arbitrary factors, like their appearance or where they went to school. So going the extra mile to ensure that we're not letting our biases control our decisions is always worthwhile. And then finally, motivate your team members. Staying motivated in the workplace can typically be tied back to three different psychological needs. The need for autonomy or control, the need for a sense of belonging and connection, and they need to feel competent and accomplished. Leaders should keep these top of mind to optimise workplace well-being, productivity and overall career satisfaction among employees. Thank you so much again for listening to this episode of New World of Work. If you're interested in what today's job seekers are looking for in an employer, be sure to check out the 2022 Employee Expectations Report by visiting the link in the show notes or visiting this URL bit.ly forward slash Oyster Report. I repeat, that's bit.ly forward slash Oyster Report. Thank you for listening to New World of Work, the podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce through an international lens. We hope this episode served to expand your horizons and open your mind to a new perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so that we can reach more listeners. I'm your host, Reese Black. See you next time.